When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No Jumper, coolest podcast in the world. And today, we got somebody I've been listening to for a long-ass time. Gorilla Black is on the podcast. How you feeling, man? Man, what's good, man? What's happening? I'm doing great. It's awesome to be in here, man. Man, definitely, man. Definitely, man. It's beautiful, man. Did you see the clip on Vlad where he titled it, like, Adam-22 talks about how Gorilla Black went to prison for the same shit that he was doing? I think I seen that. I think I seen that joint, man. I definitely, yeah, I seen it briefly. It but I interesting didn't really... comment century. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> very interesting. Definitely. For sure. I mean, okay, I, I want to do the whole story. So let, let's go all the way back. Like, where were you actually born? And let's talk about your early days, because I find that very interesting. I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, okay. Um, Cook County Hospital. Uh-huh. And um, my family ended up migrating towards Mississippi. Mm. And so, shouts out to everybody in Chicago, all my aunties, all my uncles, all my cousins. I love y'all. Um, and then we ended up going to Mississippi. And... um. My grandmother and grandfather ended up, you know, taking my mother. Um, and my uncle, he pretty much, he was driving big rigs at the time. So he was going cross country, coming to California, going to New York, all of these different places or whatever. And um, what's so crazy about it is, is when we got to Mississippi, it must have been after my grandfather died. Uh, after that, I don't know how old I was, maybe about nine, 10, something, somewhere around there. And, um, my uncle, he came down there for the funeral. Mm. And so when he came down there to the funeral, and he was like, you know, he just told my mother, this is a trap. Mississippi is a trap. You need to come to California. And so my mother, you know, she was still young relatively, but she seen the excitement in her brother's eyes about California. And she was like, man, there's swimming pools everywhere. There's houses. You know, it's just so many different jobs. You know, you can drive. It's jobs on the oil factories, all kind of stuff. So mm. my mother just packed us up and brought us to California. And um, what was so crazy is the first place that we ended up moving to was Compton. Mm. So, yeah, from Chicago to Mississippi, yeah, to Compton. Did you realize uh, that... Compton, well, I'm, even as a young kid, you probably knew that Compton is this legendary-ass place that's known for being right. crazy, right? Right. I mean, when I first got to Compton, it was it was a whole new world. Imagine me being a young kid coming to Compton. Um, I had never seen lowriders before. Mm. I had never, you know, the mentality, just everything was just so different, vastly. By the way, shouts out to all my cousins and my aunties and uncles down in Mississippi. I love y'all. I love you, Dre. You know, the baby on the way, I love you. Definitely. It's interesting because, I mean, is Mississippi a trap? Is it that much more of a trap than Compton? Um, you know what? At the time, when you look at it, you know, my mother was searching for better. So she didn't mm. plan on us coming to Compton. That wasn't what it was. But when she got here and the realities of how much things cost, mm. the cost of living – and her having a job and my mother ended up getting injured and she was working for Exxon. And so from there, things took that downturn. So by the time we got here, 
you know, she was working and, you know, just trying to fend for her kids. And so when she got injured, it just changed the whole dynamics of everything. Mm. And Compton was the only place where she could afford to survive, to take care of three boys, you know? Mm. You know, how Dollar, my brother, my young brother, Holla, you know, myself. She, she And she left my oldest brother back in Mississippi with my grandmother. Oh. So, you know just to kind of like lighten up the burden you know so yeah but it's interesting because okay what year are we talking though that you were approximately coming up out there 89 okay. 89 so 89. this is not just like compton when we think about it now i think the crime is down <laughs> a lot over the years and shit you've seen yeah. the very raw version of it huh i've seen the, the raw just you know 89 90 91 we had curls we literally had curls we was wearing khaki suits i'll never forget i got my first hawaiian silky curl from the compton swap meet you know mom bought me some cortez she couldn't buy me a lot but she bought me like three pair of cortez you know so just being there at that time seeing everything cars pulling up rims you know back then everybody had you know whether it was nissan trucks you know just the whole scenery west coast was something that was so different from any other place. You right. know, when you look at the history of New York and you look at the history of Atlanta, you look at the history of Miami, at that time, the culture, you know, the homie used to raise pits in his backyard. Then I had another homie who raised pigeons. I mean, it was just something, just the whole culture and lifestyle. And as me being a young child, my my eyes are just like wide open to like, wow, what is this like? Right. And just inside of it, the violent nature of it. Mm. Um, and 89 is like, NWA is already broken up, right? but it's pre-Snoop Dogg. Yep, yep, It's yep. kind of interesting era around that time, right. right? Like, what was the hot shit in the streets that you were seeing at that time? Man, you know, when, you know, when we seen NWA, we was dressing, it, it was so crazy because to be able to see them they dress like us. Mm. They had curls like us. They they smoke weed like us. They was like us. And it was like, damn, they embodied that. They wearing Pendleton's and khakis. They running. They got, you know, they talking about fuck the police, everything. They mm. epitomized what we were living as young kids. Unfortunately, you know, at that time and in that era, a lot of, you know, my homies, they mothers and fathers, they was on crack cocaine. So we all was in the streets. We were selling dope from day one. I started mm -hmm. selling dope at 13 years old. Right. We was in the streets. So my mom, she could only pay for things to a certain extent. But she got three kids. She paying lights, gas, buying groceries, school clothes, insurance, car registration, all of these things. So the resources are stretch limited. Right. And the things that I wanted for myself, it just wasn't, moms couldn't make it happen to that degree. Cause I was, and she tried her best. I was watching um, Big U's uh, documentary series, uh, what was it, the Hip Hop Uncovered. Right. And that really kind of hit hard when they were saying like, cause you know, for me, it's like, I grew up knowing about crack. It's not like it was in front of my face or whatever, but I right. understood there's people downtown and they're fucked up on crack. But when you're watching that documentary, they say, this was the first time ever in a lot of these inner cities where a young black person could become a rich person 
ever. Like this just did <clears throat> not happen. Right. There was no opportunity that would allow a person to go from broke to rich like that until this shit came along. And that like th what that did to the communities, both positive and negative, obviously mostly negative was like, you know, it's just huge. It's like impossible to even put into words how much that changed this environment, right? Right. 100%. And what he's saying is, is, is 1,000 because you got to think most, a lot of, you know, us came from impoverished homes. So, you know, we were below, you know, below that middle class line. So our mothers and fathers, they pretty much were blue collar. They were working people. Mm. And at that time in California, a lot of companies, a lot of factories, a lot of things left California. So coming out of those 70s and 80s, the dynamics of everything changed. We coming from the Reaganomic era. Mm. And so when crack hit, it exploded in mm. these communities. I mean, from overnight, like, you see the homie, you know, he start off with a double up, and next thing you know, the homie in a cool low ride, he's sitting in a low ride, and you're like, damn. you like... It's before your eyes, you can see it. Like, he took a double up, then went to a double up, to an ounce, to a, you know, he got four and a half, now he got a nine pack, he got a half, he up, he taking out trips, OT, he coming back, whole low rider, whole frame chrome, you like. So, the mentality of seeing this as a youngster, like, he your same age, like, damn. So, but in hindsight now, to look back at it 2020, you know, we selling cocaine to any and everybody, mm. you know, pregnant mother, you know, at our, my mind didn't have the capacity to even rationalize. I'm selling a 20 rock to a woman who pregnant. Mm. But at that time, I'm, I'm about my money. I'm about my bread. I'm out here doing it. I'm doing what I need to do. But when you look at it in hindsight, the devastation that was caused, mm. the destruction that was caused, yeah, but when you were, you were in the, the heat of the moment, you didn't really know, you probably couldn't have, like now the way that you know what the lifespan of a crackhead looks like, Right. you probably didn't really even know that. You might have seen some people tweaking on the side of the road, but you didn't know that this was kind of like a, a guaranteed result for anybody who fucks with this shit, right? Right, but <clears throat> in, in essence, you know, it was in our face. Mm. We could see it. You know, it's a difference. This person go bring their microwave to you right then go back and bring their kids bike to you then go back and take their mother's jewelry and bring it back to you until you know they doing whatever whether it's selling a body whatever it may be to supply this so this is all the conscious still no matter what it is we still have a conscious no matter what, mm -hmm. but we were kids. So our way of rationalizing it, but when you look at it in hindsight and then the memories float through my mind, you know, she just pulled up, she got her baby out there. She walked inside the gate. I give her a dub. She grabbed the dub, start pushing the baby like it's nothing. So later on, next thing you know, she, the little bike she done brought, she brought and yeah, here go a nickel rock. Mm -hmm. So, this is on a constant basis and it's going on not just myself but everybody all everybody that's around we're doing the same thing but mm. the destruction is far reaching beyond the money you know it's far reaching because you're looking at people they're getting sick some of them dying some of them hearts blowing up all kind of shit happening so
you know, in hindsight, when I look back at it, it, it was a real evil for real. Definitely. Were you, was there a lot of pressure? Or did you feel like you're kind of a, an outcast because you're showing up in Compton and there's like this whole culture and everybody's in associated with neighborhoods and shit like that and you're just moving there? Was there ever a moment where I was like, okay, this is awkward as fuck and I don't know who I'm going to be down with? Right. You know, the first, you know, when I went to Whaley Middle School, you know, my my first partner, God bless the dead, my boy D, and my other homie Casper, you know, them two pretty much showed me a lot. So the first time I seen cocaine chopped up is with my boy D, and he's sitting in his room, and he's sitting there chopping up a double up 50, and I'm like, man, what is that? Mm. And he like, fool, this is some dope. And I'm, you, But again, I'm old, you know, naive square bear. I don't know what's going on. So the more I'm with him, the more he ingratiating me, the more he's schooling me, the more he gaming me, the more he letting me understand. Look, man, this is what it is. Oh, man, I want to make some money. Mm. Give me $50, okay? He give me a chunk. Homie, what I do? He sat there and chop it up. This is 10, this 5, this 20, this, and chop it up for me, literally. And so whenever you get that, you come back. Don't spend no money. It's a double up. You should make about 100, 120 bucks. Boom. Next thing, I come back. Bam. Bam. I got I got $100. Oh, you got 100? Here go. Here go 12 grams. Mm. Bam. And so it just continued to move forward. And so he's showing me what to do and how to do. No, don't be giving out this. Don't do that. This is what you do. Don't do that. Keep your eyes open. Where, where that dope? Oh, this is over here. No, no, no. Put it over here. So being around him and Casper pretty much showed me the ins and outs of a lot. Mm. Not everything, but pretty much that initial, okay, this is how we move and this is how you're supposed to move. This is what you're supposed to do. No, you don't go over here. You don't go over here. This is what it is. So I'm young, still trying to figure it all out, but sooner or later i became engulfed in it right did you was all the drug dealing stuff before you even had to sort of click up with a gang or anything well pretty much you know it, it just it all of the different people over the period of years that you know i've been around it's been from all type of hoods mm. from everywhere you know and so i know dudes from everywhere and throughout los angeles and unfortunately you know the big thing, and, you know, I, I love your show, Adam, and definitely I've I watched it, and you're a real deep, you know, hip-hop dude. Um, Appreciate it. Thanks. It's not about glorifying that mm. because that's something that a lot of us had to do in the past because of the neighborhoods that we were in. Mm. And a lot of kids watching a lot of these different programs. And so I never wanted to be where it's glorified in that sense. Mm. Right now, we're living in some very, very particular times. This is something that I was forced inside of, and so I had to move and make alliances and bonds with a lot of different people. Mm. But I don't want to glorify that. I don't want to put that in, you know, a youngster's head that, oh, this is cool, because there's a lot of dudes that do that. But understand this, you know, where I came from is consequences mm. to every action and repercussions as well. So the thing about it is, is that that's, it's prevalent, but it's only as prevalent as one makes it. Mm. You know, it's a lot of smart, intelligent people out there. They weren't forced or raised in them areas in that culture. Like you say today, you go to Compton, it doesn't resemble anything that it resembled in 89 at mm. all. There's no Compton swap meet. It's a fucking Walmart. <laughs> you don't knock it off. Like, right. so 
back then it was real dudes that really did this that really lost their lives over it a lot of it was family but a lot of it in turn when you look at it in past tense a lot of it was the areas and the things that a lot of us had to do to survive to make it to live in los angeles compton watts i don't want a lot of these young kings young queens that think that's the shit to do so you you sound like you really fell out of love with it because I feel like there's a <clears throat> there's two different attitudes that a older gangbanger or dude is associated with gangs could take on and like a lot of people they get older and they still got so much love for it culturally right. that even though they're not standing on a corner no more or whatever they still really show love to it but then there's also people who end up kind of feeling like this is something that I fell victim to like I was this was like who have no positive memories you, of it. You got to understand, Los Angeles and Compton is no way like it was 30 years ago. Mm. It was real back in them days. It wasn't where you could go into somebody's neighborhood and not get sweated or not get asked where you was from or not get. It wasn't nowhere you could move without that shit. That mm. was what Los Angeles was 1000 percent in. To a lot of terms, in a lot of different situations, it still could happen. Mm. And it's a lot of real dudes out there that really believe in that and it's really about that. And I'm not knocking that. But it's more like isolated areas versus the entirety of L.A. and shit, right? What I'm saying is, is ultimately, that's the lifestyle a lot of them were in. And that's the lifestyle that a lot of them had to live in. And that's... A lot of them is their family, and those are the people who raised them, and that's their conditioning, and that's their cognition, and that's the choice that they ended up making. Mm. Ultimately, what I want a lot of lot of youngsters to know is is that you have the power to change and make the changes. Mm. It's so many dope youngsters out there that's so smart, that's so intelligent, that's doing so many different things that I'm seeing in Los Angeles, and so many kings and queens. In this day, and in this era, and in this time, especially when you're looking at television and you seeing a black girl being shot, you seeing a black man being choked out, mm. it's much, much, much more bigger. And I just want people to understand that I don't want to glorify that. And I really love your program due to the fact that you don't put that out there like that. Um, there's a lot of different programs that prey on that. Mm. And at the end of the day, we got to be careful of the platforms and how we use these platforms and who's watching Mm. and who's listening. So definitely that was something that we were forced in. That's something that we had to live through, Mm. but everybody have the power now. And then you looking at it in this day and age, a lot of these youngsters out here, you guys got, the power you got to understand something they have a sale for you i just sat in one almost nine years mm. i've sat with a lot of dudes from a lot of different areas throughout los angeles and they live with regret regret show me a man who hasn't regretted and i'll show you a man who hasn't lived mm. true and when they look back at the lifestyle and in which they were raised, the conditioning, the environment, ultimately the cognition, the way that they were taught to think, and ultimately the choices that led them to get 360 months, 400-something months, 500-something months, they look back and say, damn, 
wait a minute. Did they really care about me? Did they really steer me in the right direction? So I want people to be conscious of shit. Mm. Be conscious of it. Every choice, you have choices. And now in this day and age, you have options. Back then, we only had choices. Mm. And in this day, a lot of these youngsters, they got options. Yeah, like I have conversations with dudes who, you know, come from street environments and everything like that. And we talk about like what they want for their kids. I got a friend who got a 10 year old kid and he's raising them right in the middle of Compton. And we're having that conversation and it's like, you know, like he wants to raise his kid to just be a young, cool motherfucker who exactly. is not feeling like who can be cool with everybody that doesn't feel the need to prove himself through violence or, or, exactly. or turn himself into this this the person that everybody's gonna be scared of or whatever but there's a lot of role models like if this kid's sitting at home watching youtubers and, and twitch streamers and stuff i mean none of them are associated with any kind of street exactly. shit you know exactly like, in a lot of ways somebody like you or even me to an extent like not even being from that environment i grew up looking at a snoop dogg or a dr <laughs> exactly. dre exactly. and i'm understanding that like these guys are the man the men i guess because they're the craziest motherfuckers who are talking about all this shit on records right, and right, telling you exactly right, what's going on. Right, and a right. lot of these kids have role models that are not necessarily justifying their existence that way. Exactly, exactly. You know, in that day and age and in that era, when you look at Snoop and when you look at Dre, they was in those environments around those people mm. every day, all day, like myself, like a lot of different dudes out of the city. So... This is the lifestyle and the culture in which they were raised into. Mm. And when you look at a person and the choices that they make, whether you see somebody just get up one day and just start killing people, you look at a person who's sitting on death row, gang member, you look at anybody who commits a major crime, just go back from the choice that they made and go back to their environment. Go back to their environment. And then you'll know why they made the choices that they made. So mm. when you go back to that environment, Compton, Long Beach, Watts, 90, 89, 88, you looking at it was it was a whole different animal. Mm. I came home. I've been home now. What is it? I got out of the halfway house in September. Okay. Compton don't look nothing like it did a decade, almost a decade ago. Mm. The streets have changed, people have changed, things have changed, and a lot for the good, and then they're still bad. But nevertheless, you know, I got loved ones all throughout, you know, some in the bad, some in the good. Regardless of, I pray that that they can use my life as an example. Look, they got somewhere for your ass to go. Mm. You know, the guy told me before I walked out, he said, uh, Mr. Williamson, I want you to think about this. This prison here is like the Motel 6. The lights is always on for you. Mm. We always got a bunk for you. We always got a bed for you. And you've been there. So you know the next thing close to that is death. I mean, you're sitting in there living life through a bubble. Mm. And you got dudes who've been living in that bubble on that little island decade after decade after decade away from loved ones family members all of this so yeah definitely definitely so but you must have been in the streets quote unquote for a long ass time a long ass you're time. talking about moving there in 89 
But then your music career doesn't really pop off till like 2004, right? Exactly, exactly. All my life, all my life. I've been in the streets my entire life. Even at the height of my music career, I was in the streets. Really? I was moving around, literally going here, going there. I've never not moved around Los Angeles, Compton, until the federal agent said, here, over here, get in the back car, back mm-hmm. of seat, yeah. And that's when I was removed away from it. But as soon as I would come off from doing three or four months of promo dates and paid date tours, I'm back on Crenshaw riding back, you know, because, you know, when you look at it as humans, almost 85 to 90 percent of what we do is habitual mm-hmm. by habit. It's just habit, you know, the habits that we've created over our lifetime of what we do, where we go, who we're around, the people we're with, you know, fitting into those social norms that we've created mentally with the way that we think about things and the condition and the environment that we were put into. Mm. So when you think about the nineties, basically, like how would you sort of sum up what your life was like through all that? And, and I mean, obviously rap at some point becomes part of it. Oh, rap has always music period. I mean, the nineties, I believe is the greatest decade ever of hip hop music Mm. ever. You have God bless the dead. DMX, you know, you, you, everything came there in the, in the late 90s, where the early 2000s, in that first, in that turn page, when you look at albums like Illmatic, mm. <laughs> I mean, you look at The uh, Chronic, when you look at Dre's first album, when you look at DJ Quick's first album here on the West Coast, when you look at E-40's first album, all of these is the you know, icons of the West, you know, when you look back at all of that, when you look back all the way throughout that whole decade of all of the music that came out, Jay-Z's first album, Big's first album, Tupac, uh, you know, when you look at the 90s, there is no other decade. Yeah, I think yeah. at least one part of why music just isn't the same now is because of the fact that at that time, you would hear some shit and then you would go a year or a couple of years before you would hear something else. So there was just, you were able to hear so much progression in the music right. in these gaps between projects. Whereas now it's like, you know, if there's a rapper I fuck with, I hear his new shit. I hear some new shit six months. I hear another song the next week. You know, it's just yeah, nonstop. nonstop. It gives everybody an ability to sort of copy each other. And so shit sounds very homogenized. And it's, mm. it, at that time it was like, you would just hear this fucking new Wu-Tang shit and be like, mm. what the fuck? I wasn't what? prepared for this. You I wasn't even prepared. There was nothing to let me know that this was coming yeah. from listening to Illmatic. Yeah. I was not ready for yeah, Wu-Tang. Yeah, like, just know? imagine when you first heard, you know, uh, Built for Cuban Links. Mm. Imagine when you heard that. That shit was like, and I'm a West Coast dude, so when I first heard Raekwon and Ghostface, I'm like, God damn. They killing it. Mm. I mean, that album, for me, I love that album. That's just like certain albums, you know, when I first heard Quick's first album, Mm. you know, but the music, as you can hear it around the country, Outkast, when you're hearing all of these different things at that time, you know, like, damn, you, you, it was just so much music for that decade alone. And so a lot of that music was truly the soundtrack of, you know, my adolescence and up. So, so you have been making music all through the 90s? So? I hadn't been making music, okay. but I've been, you know, you know, I've always loved music, always. And so I was rapping early 90s, freestyling, writing here and there, but nothing 
to the degree of by the end of the late 90s, my writing ability and me to be able to go into, you know, start going and dabbling here and there with different, you know, writing songs and sitting down. But musically, I'd always, you know, love music. I knew how to play trombone, knew how to play trumpet since I was in middle school. So the first person to ever introduced me to music was my mother. And, you know, she played throughout the churches as I was real, real, real young in Chicago. And I remember, you know, I remember we was very, very young. And she would just pull up and she could just start playing the piano. And I used to be like, Mama, how do you know which key to play? Well, it's in my soul. I hear it. So I just want to, you know, now looking back, I realized that my mama didn't know how to read music. She mm-hmm. played it by ear. So she would play the organ, and she would just just play it. And I'm like, Mama, how do you know which one? I used to always ask my mother that, and she just played by ear. And so whenever, by the time, you know, I would go into band class, I started playing trombone, and I always had first chair. I always battled everybody in one first chair. So from there, I learned my boy, he would show me A, B, C, all the keys with the trumpet. Mm. And so I just picked up trumpet naturally. So I've always loved music. And then, you know, in that time and in that era, you know, you had the black sheep and you know what I'm saying? You, you, you know, you had lost boys. You had all of these different groups coming from east to west. And so... DJing was real big back then and so my stepfather he had all of these records I mean tons of records Bobby Womack, Brenton Wood, Percy Sledge, Hell Melvin, The Blue Notes, Betty Wright just all of these records and (laughs) man God forgive me I used to take his records and you know I'm in there playing (laughs) scratching them up and you know so you know I've always loved music always. It's a shame though when you say that that like rap used to have so much more of a reason to be concerned with what came before it, you know, both mm-hmm. because like at in, you know, 1990, it's like easier for people to remember music before rap, right. but then also just the fact that, you know, sampling was huge and right. now nobody wants to use samples because they want to get all the money from the records and right. shit like that. And that's yeah. kind of sad. Yeah. I mean, when I'm saying these records and I'm saying this, I'm li- I'm literally, I could see all of the memories with it as I'm saying, mm. you know, you got to imagine when Illmatic came out, what was that, 90, 92 or 94? I think it was 92. 90, I think it was early 90s for a little bit. Well, when Illmatic, just imagine Illmatic. I'm listening to Illmatic in Compton. Right. So, you know, I had homies, they playing Selly Cell. They got, I got homies playing, you know, MC8, and I love MC8. I love Compton's Most Wanted. And I'm playing Compton's Most Wanted, and I'm playing Selly Cell. I'm playing all of this, but I'm playing Illmatic. I'm playing Wu-Tang. I'm playing uh, uh, Biggie. I'm playing uh, Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt. So my influence from both sides was just like, damn, because I love soulful music that a lot of those samples had from the East Coast, and I love the funk that was here on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like this this, this musical thing for me. I've always loved music, period. For sure. Um, so I'm sure that like the 90s, before you actually got signed and all that, I'm sure it wasn't all smooth sailing. Was, it, was there ups and downs during that time period yeah definitely man it was a lot of ups and downs you know at that time my mother ended up moving um from Ponsetti and Elm and we moved to Tamarin and you know from at that time I really just got into you know stealing cars and Mm. you know had you know went you know went to you know what is that juvenile hall a few times or whatever not and then by the time my mother moved on Compton and Aramby I was just full-blown just 
pretty much in the streets at that time. So um, when I look back at that time, there was a lot of good times, but it was it was a lot of bad times too. You know, seeing different loved ones that you know getting killed, different people inside of the drug business fighting, just different type of things. You see wars breaking out throughout Compton, big hood wars breaking out. So Compton, yeah, in those days and in that time era, you know, that music was the soundtrack for a lot of our lives, but a lot took place, you know, during that time. You know, when you look back in the early 90s and during that Rodney King situation and all of that that happened and, you know, the, the whole unrest that took and broke over the city, you got to think a lot of this music was the backdrop to that. Mm. So I'm looking back at that and I'm looking back through that whole decade. Then when you have the DMXs come along mm. and, you know, God bless the dead, man. I mean, DMX, so many of us love DMX, you know. Um, he was just, man, just he spoke to, by him being from there, he spoke to so many dudes on the West Coast mm. in a way that hadn't been spoken, I think, for, you know, by a lot of different artists out of the East Coast. That's why he's so loved here. He had an energy that sort of went beyond what coast he was from. You'd never, exactly. You, you had never heard something it, like that, you, regardless. Yeah, you never, it was like a bomb drop when that first album, it was like a bomb drop. All over the city, they was just playing. I'll never forget, man. I'm like, i never forget. I had a 32-ounce of Magnum, and my homie was like, man, you heard that new DMX, his whole album? And I remember we just played it back to back to back to back. We sitting there rolling blunts, and we just like, damn, who is this? Mm. And we, I remember when we first seen him, we was like, where is he from? Where is he? We didn't know where he was from. You know, we were so young. And then we found out eventually he was from New York, but we was like, we hadn't heard nothing like it. You heard so many people be like fake angry on songs. Yeah. But then you had him where it's like you really felt the sadness yeah. and, yeah. and the, you, the you, pain, you know? Yeah, it was deep, man. It was deep. So I'd never forget. And then the second album. So when you're looking at that that time, when you're looking at Master P in that mm. era and all of the music that came up out of that, you know, that time through the, from the South, he was one of those engineers out of the South that made music that was relatively relative to a lot of West Coast dudes. Mm. And the lifestyle that they live was almost a lot similar to a lot of ours. And it just was so dope how he was able to integrate it and make it happen and then show so many dudes his entrepreneurial spirit mm. and his understanding and the dynamics of you know him being inside of the game from an independent standpoint and understanding how to monetize it in a way that hadn't been seen before mm, so, where, where were you during the riots your memories of that time <laughs> yeah i remember exactly where i was back then downtown on compton boulevard there was a circuit city uh -huh. so when the riots first broke out up what is this, Acacia, Orleander, there was a store on the left-hand side. And I'll never forget, my mom's had a hornet. And we went inside of the store, man, I'll never forget. And I must have took almost a whole crate of beer and put it in the back of there. Uh -huh. Then we went to another store. We put different food in there. Then we went to another liquor store. So then the homies had told me, oh, we finna go over here and hit Circuit City. But they had, they had bolted it up and everything like mm -hmm. that. So... I remember Compton was on fire riding down Compton Boulevard. You just seen everything on fire. Just, I never forget that. Did it feel like the destruction in your own community, or did it feel like revenge on the police? Looking back at it in hindsight, it was revenge at the police. You know, you know, at that time. But then looking at it in a bigger, bigger, you know, spectrum of it, from being like, damn, we tore our own shit up mm. because. 
a lot of those stores have been in the communities for so long. Mm. A lot of shit was in the community and had been there and been staple points. So at the time, the anger was at the system, at the police, at the justice system and all of those things. But in that, I think people really wanted to show we will tear this motherfucker up mm. if we don't get some type of justice. And so in hindsight, it took Los Angeles a long time to rebuild after that. And it's interesting because I think last year during the George Floyd shit and everything, that was like the, the next round of like big protests for America. I remember there being like a very clear conversation on Twitter or whatever when you're seeing the sort of activist community speak to each other and stuff where it was like, we're going to Beverly Hills to protest. Like, we're not going to do this in our own community. Exactly. Which, I mean, I'm not like hugely in favor of people destroying anything, but I mean, that does make a lot more fucking sense than burning <laughs> down like your grocery store exactly. that you go to that every you day. Go you know? Every day. I, it, you're, you, you know, when you ask that question, at the time, it wasn't what we have today. It wasn't where all of these activists, we have the Black Lives Matter, we have all of these you know, socially conscious people of exactly what's going on and being able to coordinate things with Instagram, Facebook, mm. and able to have all of these different social media outlets to be able to formulate and get, you know, start brainstorming on great ideals. It was just a spur of the moment. It was a lot of anger. It was a lot of intensity behind that at mm. that moment. And so pretty much Los Angeles wanted to show the world this was fucked up. This is fucked up. And in hindsight, when you look at it, it was truly fucked up because, yeah, we burned down a lot of our own communities. A lot of stores have been there 20 years, 30 years. You know, we had relationships with, you could go in some of these same stores, you know what, with a note, hey, I ain't got it right now. Oh, here, take a loaf of bread, take a pack of hot dogs, take this, take some Kool-Aid, take the rest. And yeah, when you get your check, mm. in these same stores, we burnt them up. Damn. Um. So around the time, like, leading up to you getting signed and all that had you become kind of sick of of the lifestyle that you were living and were you looking for something that would be, be able to change your life and were you thinking that music might be the thing i definitely did man um prior to that you know it was a real turning point for me um prior to me getting signed i had been rhyming for a long long time and i had lived you know throughout los angeles and compton and um i had met someone that i truly loved a lot and when I met her, it just really just gave me a different outlook on everything and in the way that we were able to bond and the motivation that she gave me and the spiritual, you know, you know, subtleness that I had with her, she was really a, a big factor in pushing me forward and towards my music career. And um, prior to me getting, you know, signed, I ended up losing her and she died of spinal uh, meningitis. And so... And she was young, I'm assuming. She was very, very young. She Damn. was very, very young. And um, it was just so crazy. I mean, she had went to work. She went to work, you know, as she normally do. And so that day at work, she ended up, you know, using one of the utensils. She always packed her lunch. She always took her stuff to work. And so that day, um, um, she didn't. And so I'll never forget when she came home, she kept screaming how she had these terrible headaches and um she started screaming and um i called 911 and so when the paramedics they got there um they was like what did she eat what's going on with her i said i don't know and so when we got her to the hospital um 
the doctor was like, you know, we want to do a spinal tap. Because at the time, I didn't know that the fluids that are on your brain are the same fluids that's on your spine. And so when they were able to run a spinal tap, they realized that she had spinal meningitis. And, um, you know, there's three types, Adam. Um, there's tuberculosis, there's bacterial, and then there's viral. And she had the worst one, which is viral. Right. So even though the doctors were able to shotgun all of these different antibiotics in her, hoping that one of them would penetrate and work, ultimately only her body could cure her mm. um as she began to succumb to it she lost the feeling in her legs at the time i didn't know that she was paralyzed so every day i would rub her legs down with oil hey press your foot against my hand you know talk to her and her hands was working perfectly but she really had no mobility in her feet she couldn't even press my hand like this her foot against my hand and so I started asking the doctor, hey, when will she have feeling? What's going on? And so eventually, towards her death, he told me that she was paralyzed. Yeah. yeah. And she was your inspiration for wanting to make something out of out of your yourself, but then did that change things for you? Did, like that, did that make it hard for you to still have that motivation? Yeah, I lost total motivation, to be honest with you. I'll never forget, man. I, I told my brother Hot, you know, my brother Hot Dollar, I told him, I said, you know, I don't want to do this no more, man. I'm I'm cool. I don't want to make music. And he was like, what? I said, no, nah, I'm cool, bro. I, I don't want to do it. And um, he was like, Black, you tripping. You tripping, Black. And I was like, no, nah, I'm cool. And um, I was like, yeah, man, I'm cool. And so, you know, my brother was, he just seen me. Mentally, I had lost something, and I lost a big part of myself spiritually because this is somebody that I truly bonded with. And um, I never forget the way that the songs came together that ended up getting me the deal in different record labels, you know, courting me, is songs that I ended up recording for his birthday because he begged me to come and do a song with him. And I was like, man, I'm not finna come to no studio. He was like, bro, you mean you can't come on? For me, it's, it's my birthday. I'm not asking you for anything. Mm. All I'm asking you to do is come and get on a record for me for my birthday. Can you do that? And I was like, yeah, you know what? I got you, bro. And um, I remember he played Pots and Jars, which is a single. Well, it wasn't a single. It was one of the songs that got me signed. And they played three beats. And I think in 17 minutes, I had all three of those songs. You recorded your part in 17 minutes on three different songs i recorded three whole songs in 17 minutes so you were just going off the top already at that point in your career or what i just had so much material already written really okay yeah i had wrote like <laughs> right before i walked out of the penitentiary i wrote 600 verses so mm. i've been quite quite i've been alone i've been doing this a long time Adam. <laughs> right. i've been doing this a long time so you know when it comes to you know me writing i write a lot Mm -hmm. I'm still to this day, I'm, you know, I stopped for a long, long period of time. You know, um, when uh, Nipsey died, that's the first time I picked up my pen inside of the penitentiary. Wow, really? When he died, um, because I had so many memories with him, and I told myself there I would never do this music shit again, and I was done. And um, when he died, something in me said, yo, Black, pick up your pen, pick up your pen. And... I haven't put it down since. Wow. When Nipsey died and you were in prison, that must have been a fucking moment in there, huh? That was a fucked up moment, man. Because, you know, Nipsey was the hope of a lot of dudes that came from the inner cities of Compton, Watts, and Los Angeles. But 
he came from that lifestyle. Mm. He came from that culture. But he seen something bigger than that. That's why he wanted to give back. He wanted to show not only his peers, but he wanted to be something that was bigger than the condition that he came up in. And that's why he dedicated and energized so much of his energy and time inside of that community, mm. whether it be through different school projects that he wanted to do, commercial real estate. He wanted to lead by example, lead by example. And, you know, a lot of the things, you know, before, you know, I went to prison way back, I used to go to 1500 or Nutton's house. And around that time, my brother had just did his deal. We did it with Johnny Shipes over at Cinematics. Shout out Johnny Shipes. Shout out to Johnny Shipes, man. Love you, boy. I always, like, interviews, random documentaries I'm watching, I will always see Johnny Shipes, and I'll always hit him up and be like, bro, like, you've just been around this shit. Hey, man, Johnny Shipes, man, been around a long fucking time, man, this Mm. shit. And so Johnny Shipes is the one who was just like, man, yo, man, he really believed in my brother. And so i never forget that, man. Back then when he first ended up doing that deal over there with uh, Shipes, with... uh, with uh, Sony Epic and Cinematic and all of them. And so, you know, around that time, I never forget, man, we used to always just go hang out and go everywhere, man. I'd go up there and record with them. And just different, you know, for so long, man, I had new nip. i never forget when I was at the dealership, it, he bought a two-door and I bought a four-door Benz. And just so many different memories I had. So I'll never forget. I'm hearing the word throughout the penitentiary. I pick up the phone. I call hot. Soon as my brother answered the phone, he said, Black, he gone. He gone, Black. He gone. I'm like, you for real? He like, man, he gone. This is, you know, because we were so close. i never forget he used to pull up to my brother's studio and Nippa say, hey, what's going on with Black? And, you know, Yo, get us the black. Make sure black good in there. Make sure he good. My brother like, no, nah, I got him. He good. He good. He like, no. Nah. He used to. That's the type of heart he had. That's the. Out of a lot of the West Coast artists that I've known over the years, over many, many, many years, and there's a lot of good, good, good hearted dudes. It was a different understanding because I felt him on a bigger level because, you know. I seen, you know. When he did that multiple times with my brother, I always wanted to look out on me. It was just, you know, a lot of, you know, when you're in prison, you know, you pretty much, you know, you're a foregone conclusion, mm. you know? Especially me, I'm an older artist. I've been around the game forever and a day, but I think a lot of things that I said to him, he really took to heart. And so he pulled up on my brother and he was like, man, you know, we already had, I already had a, two barbershops in Hawthorne, you know, for years and years and years since 05. Mm. And he said, man, when I seen that, man, I wanted to open up my T-shirt shop. And that's what I went and did. Mm. Everything that he seen, he took it and he took it to a whole nother level. And who would know that he would create the brand Crenshaw like that or, you know, do all of the stuff that he was doing. So, yeah, that really, from the time when they killed him, I picked up my pen and I haven't put it down. Definitely. Um... Okay, so what what happens in the, the lead up to you getting signed? How does that start to become an issue? 
What do you mean? Me? Not, not an issue, but how does it start to become a possibility that you might be able to really take this rap thing serious? Um, you know, I didn't really even take it serious then, um, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't even take it serious then. The guys who I had ended up cutting the three records with, they were shopping them. Mm. I'm still working at Target. I'm still working at Target, and I'm still, I still got a sack. Mm. I'm in the streets and got a job because I need both to pay bills. You know, my other, not only, you know, my support system, you know, this is a my my spouse, she's gone. So all of the bills are on me. Mm. Um, so I'm doing it all. So I never even paid no no mind about it no more. I just forgot about the fucking songs. Um, the dudes ended up having a lot of eternal beef amongst themselves because they were all trying to bring me in different directions. Mm. So one would take me to Def Jam West. One would take me over here to Sony. One would take me over here to Warner. And then eventually I met Pete Farmer over at Virgin. And so Pete didn't play it like an A&R from a distance. He was really involved highly, and he really wanted to figure out who I was. He wanted to figure out the music that I was doing. He wanted to be involved. Mm. And, you know, I never, I didn't take him serious neither. Um, I come from the old, old way of things. I don't believe nothing I hear in half of what I see. Mm. So in that saying, you know, oh, I'm going to get you a deal. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It sound like he underwater. I'm like, so yeah, okay, whatever. It's like saying he's gonna turn you into a superhero or something. The fuck? Like seriously? Like okay, yeah, whatever. So yeah, let me hit the connect up. You know, let me find. I need to make a move. So he was like, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm really serious. I'm finna sign you to a deal, bro. I'm finna do this. I'm like, yeah, you and the other five other labels. And he was like. I can go get you a bag now. You can go get me a bag. So I'm like, you can get me a bag. He was like, yeah, I can go get you a bag right now. I can get you 14000 against your advancement. You're going to get almost, we'll give you almost $250,000. i will get you 14000 against it right now. Just show how serious I am. I'm like, yeah, do it then. He mm-hmm. was like, well, you got to do, we'll do the short form. We'll put up the money for Peter Lopez and Mark Kavinsky as your attorneys and whatever it goes through this route. And then when you start signing, when you sign the small portion of the short form, we'll give you an advancement. I was like, shit, do it. Uh-huh. I want to see this. So I signed the shit and they sent me a check. So after that, I signed another portion of it. And so they had my bank account and I seen, you know, the rest of the money was in my bank account. Right. So I was signed to Virgin. And so from there, I'm still in the streets. Right. <laughs> And so Pete was like, "But now you have a lot more capital to work with. Oh, a lot more. <laughs> so my my mind at the time is like, okay, this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna make. So Pete was like, look, bro, listen, that bullshit is over with, bro. I need you in the studio. I'm like, well, shit, I, I still, you know, I'm telling him I got a job. I'm, I'm on some nickel slick shit. He like, no, nah, fuck that job, bro. I just gave you almost two hundred fifty thousand dollars." Come on, let's go. And so Pete was in the studio on me, you know, all the damn time. So that just really pulled me away from that shit all the way. And just, I was like, oh, I can really do this. They giving me money to do this. So to rap, okay, fuck it, let's go. It's so interesting because, like, when we think about artists making something out of themselves, 
these days it's like it's on you and then the label will like swoop in at a certain point and start helping to make your career move but at that time it was so different because an artist who's coming out really had to like it had to be working with the label from step one because you just cannot gain any kind of real traction right, unless right, you have the right. label sort right. of hyping your shit up right. so did you feel like you were good at playing that game or or were, was that a skill that you had to kind of learn as you went I, it was a skill that i had to learn because when i first started going into the virgin buildings i'm like okay who are all of these people right who is that and i'm seeing all of these people sitting in desk who is that oh okay who is that so i was like yo black Every one of these people inside of here have potential and they're going to be working with your project. We need to find out who they are and what they do. We need to either have a meeting, we need to take them to lunch. So we developed the skill of <laughs> befriending and figuring it all out. So Making everyone like you. Hey, so what is your job? Well, I'm the head of this department, and what I do is I set up all of your interviews, whether they be locally, whether they be internationally. I work with everyone. I do all of these different artists that are here on the, oh, okay, so I'm going to be the one setting up all of your interviews. Oh, okay, wow. So, yeah, I'm ready to do any of them that you want me to do. Oh, you're going to do any of them, any and every one of them that you ever asked me to do. Mm. Okay, cool. So when can I sit down with you and we can, you know, so I would take them out to lunch, bring them lunch. So every person I figured out inside of a label had a pivotal part. Oh, you're the head of radio. So you're going to have me doing the radio tours. Mm. So I'm going to be going on the road with, oh, I need to really figure out who you are. So I had to really not only let them meet me on a genuine level and understand what it was that I wanted to accomplish, but I wanted to build those friendships and relationships. And those people, they really pushed my project. And they all had their hands in it. And I'm thankful for all of them because they taught me so much about the industry, things that a lot of artists weren't privy to. And I was able to go back and share this information to Glasses Malone and Bishop and talk to all of these dudes, J-Rock, and, oh, this is how this work, and this is how this work. Because, you know, if you look back at that time, myself and Game, we were pretty much the precursors to a lot right, of the artists that came. You were before the game, basically, because his blow-up with G-Unit was maybe like a year or so yeah, after you. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of hard for a lot of people to remember, but the L.A. had gone a long-ass time without a star, like yeah, all through yeah. the, the, the late 90s and stuff. Right, it was right. kind of like a slow period for yeah, L.A., right, right? Right, 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 definitely. And so when you're looking at that, I was a precursor to a lot of those artists, so mm. it was easier with all of the information that I had to share with them, whether I shared it with Nip, I would sit down with Glasses, I would sit down with them, and anywhere I would go, I always made sure that I put those artists out there because, like I just spoke to the artists that was here a minute ago, they're the future of the West. Mm. They are the future. So even though I'm in my prime, I'm at my light, I'm still shooting my light back because, again, the same people you meet up is the same people you meet on your way down. Mm. And regardless of, you have to understand it. Hip-hop is a changing form of art. Mm. It continues to change. If it stayed in one state, it could never grow. If hip-hop today, Adam, was like hip-hop in 92, mm. those good old days, those Wu-Tang, 
would we know about the little Dirks or the little babies? Would it music it would not be the biggest art form in the world if exactly. it had just stayed stagnant. Exactly. It's a growing, moving body of work. Mm. And it's like, it's like if we hung a Van Gogh here and we had an, another, uh, 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 we had a, a Mona Lisa here and we had a Van Gogh here and we're looking at all of these different, you know, Picasso. Look at the time ranges. But the beauty is still there nonetheless. Mm -hmm. They're still in their body of time. But as you look at new artists all the way, as they continue to grow and gravitate and change, it's changing. And that's what hip hop is. Mm -hmm. If it stayed in one dimension, it could never stay, it could never be the biggest, you know, it could never be the biggest of what it is. That's the difference with it and every other genre, mm -hmm. that it continues to evolve, change. It could take shape. You hear Western, you may hear pop, you may hear uh, classical music inside of it. It's able to take all of these different bodies and different shapes and from different cultures and be able to integrate mm -hmm. it. So that's what makes it a world music. For sure. When you say the thing about really getting to know the labels and everybody who works at the labels and stuff, what that makes me think is that's why his album came out. <laughs> because there's been so many great artists throughout rap history who just don't even ever end up putting their project out. Obviously now it's a little different, but right. back in the nineties and stuff, you would just forever hear about like a dope rapper who got signed and their right. project never even happened. Never came out. And am I correct that you would say that's like one of the main factors of why they actually ended up really getting behind your shit is because of the relationships or I think for myself, I really do believe that because even when I went to Europe and I was there in France, and I got to meet everyone at Capitol there in France. Mm. And so I got to meet, you know, the people from EMI over there because there's different divisions of EMI that were pretty much. And so me continuously developing those relationships and understanding how vital and pivotal all of these different people and the parts and the positions of how they made the cog, you know, turn inside of that wheel. Each one had an intricate part in that. You know, there was the person who had to deal with all of the different people, whether it would be Viacom and how they got my videos on 106 and Park and had my videos here and as well on MTV. Then, you know, there's another person that, okay, well, I'm dealing with all of the people here at Radio 1 that's going to be able to get you on these Radio 1 shows. Mm. And then at the same time, they were able to barter me doing, you know, promo dates for, you know, a lot of more spins on their weekly, you know, cast, you know, so I would go and do a bunch of promo runs. I would pull up and meet the program directors and different things. And I also developed relationships. So that in and itself, I had a lot of good people that were working around me, but I do know that I really wanted to learn. So mm -hmm. I approached it with the curiosity in the mind of a child. Like I, I, everything that I thought that I knew, I excluded it. I don't know nothing. So I'm going to let these people who do this for a living teach me. And so each one of them just used to sit down with me for vast amounts of time. Every day I was at Virgin Records, I would be up there flip-flops and <laughs> elbows ashy, just sitting there at their desk, and they would explain all of the artists they work with. And, and so I just got to develop great relationships with people who had been in the industry for 10 and 15 years and had worked on some of the biggest projects that – you know, I didn't even know about or the history about, you know, like Kevin Black, how he was breaking stuff all the way back in death row days and stuff and all the way up to 50 Cent. I'm like, and he had told me about records he had broke for all of these artists for year after year after year after year after year. So to be able to develop relationships with a lot of different people that, 
you know, you never hear of or never see this behind the scenes. Yeah. And the marketing campaign must have been pretty strong, too, because, I mean, I was like a 19-year-old kid in, in Queens, <laughs> and I knew all about it. And I, when I look back, I'm like, I guess it was magazines. It was... I mean, there must have been, because that was like before there were blogs and stuff in like 2003, 2004. Right, right. There was magazines for sure. I'm sure you were all up in Double XL and shit load and stuff yeah, like that. I was in a lot of those magazines, Double XL. Yeah. I was in the Source magazines, a lot of those different magazines. But yeah. at that time, it wasn't easy to make like people in New York know all about a new rapper from Compton. No, no, definitely it, a lot it of wasn't. Work. Definitely it wasn't. Um, when you look at, a, at the, the spending budget, you know, in those times, you know, artists at those times, it was a lot different than, you know, I'm seeing and learning so much still to this day mm. about how these young kids are moving around and it's just eye-opening. So I approach it with that because these guys are doing some phenomenal shit. They literally are creating their songs, writing their songs, making videos for their songs, producing their songs. They able to get them on different streams. They're doing this totally independent. They have took this and evolved it to a whole nother animal and grabbed their careers by the horns and shifted it and geared it in different directions and monetized it. So mm. it's totally different from the age of it in which I came into the game. You know, you see cats, you know, you look at them and next thing you know, they got millions of streams on a, on a, on a live stream and you're like, wow, what man, and he's just on there just chilling and talking. I'm like, damn, you know, I've, I've been gone for quite some time. So I'm still learning. And these young dudes, you know, they are the future. And so I just sit back and I, I, I wonder with all just like, damn, I mean, because in those days there was a machine, literally a machine, an army of people mm. that were running around, putting up pictures, PPP, P, uh, in uh, side of the stores, you know, the, the little, you see a person, whole figure of his body there with the CDs there. And it was, you know, you had Targets and you had Best Buys and these were the biggest buyers of, of CDs. They always have been the biggest. So, you know, me coming home and CDs don't even exist no mm. more. <laughs> so yeah yeah but it's interesting because you're talking about sitting down at the label with people who are like basically telling you like this is how i set up interviews for you what do you do when you get home from prison this time set up an interview with vlad set up an interview with me <laughs> i mean you, you know you still got that knowledge huh uh, well you know what i i still come at at it with with a childlike you know approach i still come at it with a childlike approach i'm still hungry and you know i'm still I'm still learning. I'm mm. still learning. I'm learning from you. I learned from Vlad. I learned from everybody, like, how this game goes and how it's shifted. It's been a total paradigm shift. Mm. And so when you look at a lot of artists now and artists from old and some of the different gears that they've shifted into and the positions that they have now, whether I see podcasts with different, like, whoa, wow. That's dope. I didn't know that. Or I see other artists just, you know, keep recreating themselves and rebranding themselves and repackaging. Then I'm looking at the new guys. And, you know, so everything is an eye opener and I approach it with that curiosity. I approach it with, you know, I don't know nothing. Even though I've been in this shit for a long time, it don't matter. What I know, the conventional wisdom that I had, I just put that shit in the bag and threw it out the door because the shit doesn't change so much. For sure. Um, 
I listened to your whole uh, first album on the way here for probably the first time in almost 20 years today. <laughs> and I will say that it strikes me as like a very, very good album and that it sounds, at least a lot of the tracks sound very classic, even right, if maybe right. it's not necessarily talked about or remembered like the way right, that it, right. uh, to me, it seems like it would be worthy of. When you look back on that album, did you put your all into it? And what do you think of it in retrospect? When I look back at it in retrospect, the other day I was in a barbershop and when I was in there, he was cutting my hair, and the dude was playing it. And I just kept having the memories of us cutting it. I'll never forget when I went in the studio with Jazzy Faye. And, man, shouts out to Jazzy Faye, man. That dude is so fucking talented, so creative, so energetic inside mm. of the studio. Um, I think at that time, man, I was in a different space, and I had so many different pieces around me to help me shape that into what it is. And I can't take all of the credit for it. You know, when I look at Carlos Brody, when I look at Mario Winans, what they brought to the project, I'll never forget the record when I cut it with Nate Dog. And I remember I wrote the verse and I spit my verse to Nate. And Nate looked at me and he was like, homie, you gotta come way harder than that. Really? He checked me right there. God bless the dead. The homie checked me. He was like, he's like, look, you gotta be spitting. I don't know. You you Man, I'm sitting there, and me and my brother like, nigga, this Nate dog. He was like, nigga, you better go rewrite your verses right now. Mm. So I'm sitting there rewriting my verses, and I'm, 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 cause he he just totally rejected my deposit. No lie, man. Listen, this man was so talented and gifted. He had the Hennessy. He's sitting in there. I never forget. It was a booth in the garage. They had the control booth inside the living room, and so he's sitting in there. We give him the chicken, we give him the Hennessy, he roll up the weed, he sit there, he smoke his weed, he drink his Hennessy, eat his food. And he just said, I'm ready. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. The man walked directly in the booth, no paper, no shit, and spit the hook. I was like, what the fuck? I mean, it was so crazy. And when me and my brother, we listening to it, we like, damn. And he was like, you got to come off. You got to kill this shit. Mm. And then, I mean, I must have rewrote my verses a few times. So, yeah. And then when I finally, I, I spit the first verse, he was like, okay, all right. So then I rewrote the second verse again and took elements from it and put with that. And I'm like, okay, let me redo this. And so, but, you know, Nate was, you know, people don't know, but he was a perfectionist to that extent. And he was so dope, man, and his ear for music and the way that he embodied it and his talent, man. I mean, just imagine, I'm seeing him rolling some weed, drinking, eating chicken, and say, I'm ready. Was the beat playing that whole time? The beat was playing. So he's just the like subconsciously just forming it in his brain? I, man, the man stood up, walked through the garage door, walked into the booth, and spit it. One take, Jake. Mm. I'm like, me and my brother, we sitting there like this. And so when I spit my first verse, he was like, homie, you got to come way harder than that. Mm. I'm sitting in there, and my brother was like, hey, man, let's go outside. We had to have a huddle behind this shit. But, you know, that's a legend. He he, he rejected my deposit. I mean, <laughs> shit. I mean, what I'm going to say, this man's selling millions of records. Like, yeah. go rewrite this fucking verse. So I sat there and kept writing and writing and writing. I must have damn wrote eight verses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Definitely. Yeah. So the album comes out, and did... 
did you feel like they were immediately like, oh, this hasn't met our expectations? Because especially at that time, if your album didn't sell like millions of copies, then you just they just weren't really interested. Right, in you, right. right. Well, that first week we did forty two thousand. And so uh, eventually, you know, the album ended up going gold. Mm. It went over gold. Um, when you look back at it, at that time, the label was really excited. But it wasn't like it is now where you have so many platforms. Now, what is it? Is it like 50-something? It's, what, 50-something platforms, streaming platforms. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, it's you like 50. you got the big ones, but then there's a lot yeah, of small yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Imagine... It wasn't like how it is now then. So mm. it wasn't like your platform. There's people watching and hearing this all around, and it's going to be everywhere. Mm. It wasn't nothing like this. So everything was organically from the ground, grassroots. I did 200 promo dates. Mm. 200. Over about 200 and something like that. Over the course of like 200 days or how long were you on the road for that? Sometime I was on the road almost seven, eight months at a time. (sighs) For free, basically, right? For free. Yeah. For free. Um, To get the word out, you know, back then it was called, you know, shake hands and kiss the babies. I don't think they can get artists to do that anymore. (laughs) Like they try to get artists to do promo tours these days and I think they're like, nah. Exactly. So in them days, everywhere I would pop up, Mike Jones would be there. You know, I would just re- keep running into different artists, whether it be on this one, it would be John Legend. Here it would be Sierra. Here it might be Pitbull. You know, some of these artists blew so big. You I know? remember that. The era when you came up was also the era when, like, Slim Thug was coming Slim up. Thug. And I remember he was one who they tried to put him on the road for months doing promo tours, but he's already big down south making yeah. hella money performing yeah. at clubs and shit. He's like, I'm not fucking doing that exactly. for free. You know? I'll never forget when we did the box radio tour down in Houston. And so him and Pharrell was there, whatever not. And, you know, I was so dog sick. i never forget. I remember I flew from Philadelphia to there. And so I'm running a fever. And, I mean, the label ran me until I had hoofs. Mm. I literally, my feet was hoofs. I mean, I really had horseshoes on, these, on, my, on my dogs. So, I mean, I was so exhausted and dehydrated when I finished performing I walk out of the back, it was for 50000 and I collapsed. And so when I collapsed, you know what I mean, uh, Scrappy and all of them like, damn, what's going on? Everybody looking and everybody like, back up, back up, back. Because I had been performing, 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 performing. I mean, anywhere, the whole Chitlin circuit through the South. I mean, I must have zipped zip through the Bible Belt, just back and forth, Bible Belt, Bible Belt, then go to the Midwest, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, Milwaukee, just continuously, nonstop. nonstop. I mean, the label ran the brakes off me. And so I finally collapsed, and um, I was down in Houston at the box. And uh, i never forget, you know, uh, Scrappy coming to my room, and he was like, man, wake your ass up. And I remember they had the IV. They was feeding me fluid or whatever, not just to rehydrate me or whatever, not. But that's how much I had ran, literally. Were you yeah. taking care of yourself at that time, or were you getting fucked up and all that? I was fucked up because I was drinking, you know, Theraflu. That was my, my, my choice. Back then, Theraflu was a really? little. Really? Yeah, I used to take two or three Theraflus and pour them in a little coffee cup, and I drink that Theraflu. Really? Because you, I stayed sick, so I didn't realize that how strong Theraflu was. Right. And so I would buy a whole box of them and pour three of them in a cup, and before I hit the stage, and I'd be feeling real good. You and never so, got into the lean? 
no, I, that, my shit was Theraflu. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, you know, after I drink the Theraflu, I hit a, you know, a shot of Gorilla Milk and I'm ready to go. I so. feel like Theraflu, like they still talk about that and like Benadryl and shit in, in terms of prison stuff. Yeah. Dudes will be able to get it in yeah. there. No, it was a lot stronger um, in those times than it is now. Okay. Theraflu, I used to drink three and four of them at a time. So I would rip them off, pour them in the thing and steer them up in a little white cup. Okay. And so, because I... At first, I was just, you know, Theraflu helped me. I was feeling sick. I've been re- traveling. I got a cold. I'm here. I'm in New York. I leave New York. I'm down in, in Miami. I leave Miami. I'm back in the Midwest, so I'm traveling, so I'm getting sick. So I just started this Theraflu thing. And so, yeah, that's that's what I was into heavy, you know, just drinking that Theraflu. And so I didn't realize how strong and all of the shit that was in Theraflu at the time. So, mm. yeah. So is there a point in the, like, did they make a real effort on your second album or did you start to feel like they were just kind of losing interest or something at some point after the first album? Well, after the first album or whatever, not, I was contractually binded to, you know, those two albums and six options. So what ended up happening was, is that at the time, Virgin was really trying to really build an urban section and they really wanted to have a lot of powerful urban people in charge. And so at that time, Janet, really was rebelling against Virgin. And so I think it made more sense for Janet to bring in Jermaine to executive produce that project. And so when he did come in, they wanted to make him the president. And so when a label ensues, uh, you know, new new upper echelon changes, you know, at the magnitude and the level in which they were at that time, it becomes what's called, well, in that day was a bloodletting, a bloodbath. Mm. And so a lot of people were getting fired. A lot of people, you know, it, it, it causes pandemonium. And so at the time I was being managed by Jimmy Henchman. And so, um, you know, I'm translating, you know, my message to him. He's translating the message to the label. The label is translating the message back to him, back to me, vice versa. And so, you know, at that time, Every, everything in that that whole thing and the, the component of what drew us together and what it created the first project, a lot of those components weren't there at the company any longer. Mm. Um, Jermaine came in and he had a different direction in which he wanted to take the company in. And so, you know, again, our interests, they definitely became unaligned. And so when that happened, we all parted and went into different directions. And I think more than anything, it was just a direction in which, you know, Jermaine thought that my project should go and the direction in which I think that my project should go and you know not to take away from him you know he's you know legendary throughout the south and he made so much you know the music that's you know been the backdrop for you know that whole south region Mm. and you know he lived in that he been in that you know for his whole entire life like I've been on the west coast my almost entire life lived this been with this seen it on every level on every aspect so it's kind of hard for me to tell an artist in the South how he should be South, you know, because I haven't lived there. I wasn't raised there. I don't know all of the culture. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't know the lingo. I don't know all of the different everything that entails in that because mm-hmm. he's lived here his entire life. Like, he doesn't know the same that entails with a West Coast artist. Right. Like, did you feel like you were really making a play to be a West Coast sort of artist? Or at some point, it it didn't really feel like you were 
going with that sound necessarily right, right. in the same way. Like right, I right. feel like that sound was kind of like not considered cool at that time. Right, maybe. right. I think what it was is that I wanted to take my album in a different direction, and in the direction of it to being is is that. With us being on the West Coast, we set trends, and we've always set trends. So it's when I, the music that I made was something that was totally different from a lot of the West Coast sound that it came previously, and it was to set us in a different direction, musically, sonically, lyrically. And I wanted to show the West Coast that there could be lyricism, that we could do music on different platforms and on different backdrops of music from different regions and work with different artists outside of the West Coast and in which would shape a whole different form. And then I think I look back now, I think, you know, again, I was the precursor to that because look at the artists that followed after myself, after Game and continuously the line of artists all the way up to Kendrick's to mm, this day. Definitely. Do you feel like the label wanted to put you like like obviously there was this biggie comparison? Do you feel like that label sort of pushed that angle of it almost? Definitely. They wanted to pigeonhole things to a certain degree. It wasn't the whole entire label. Right. It's certain people inside of the label. You know, there's a lot of good people, so to just blame something on a whole entity. I won't do that. But there was a lot of people that were in power that were over my project that wanted to pigeonhole and put things in that one perspective. From like a marketing perspective, like this will help people to understand that if we compare them to one of the biggest rappers of all time, right? I don't know exactly what their logic of thinking was at the time, but mm -hmm. I know that that, you know, you could say that if we're going to assume, but a lot of the different things in which they approached it, they wanted to put it in that spectrum of it. And so... um a lot of the different writers from different magazines and different articles and different things of that nature also wanted to shape things to a certain perspective. So it kind of led me to believe, yeah, if he's believing this and now he's saying this and also he's saying this, but you have certain people that are setting up the interviews. And so then you're sending out these press release with mm. certain material to kind of steer things in this direction that, you know, I didn't have control or power of. Because was that something that people said about you musically all your life leading up to it? Because, like, when I'm sitting here talking to you now, I don't right. hear a similarity in right. your voice exactly. to Biggie. Exactly. And so I think more than anything, you know, people's perspective of things and when you look at the opinions, you know, if you said, well, Jay-Z, okay, well, you look at LL Cool J. Mm. Um, when you think of Big, you could say, okay, Chubb Rock. Mm. Um, again, you can make comparisons throughout it until you take an artist and break it down and look at his whole body of work. Then you can really say, oh, wow, that's if you say fabulous and think of Mace, mm. go and look throughout hip hop and the, 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 the archives of hip hop compared to a lot of music that you see today. It's like you said, you, you know, it's easy to, to homogenize. homogenize you know, to be able to, to to look at it and see how easily that so many different artists have the same sounding records, the same sounding concepted records, oh, yeah. same sounding everything in this one period. Like, whoa. But, you know, when you go back and you look at that, and I've always been deep-voiced, and I've always been a heavy-set dude, and, you know, when people compare me, you know, there is no comparison. Biggie is one of the greatest artists that ever did it in our culture, mm. him, Tupac. So when you look at his body of work and you look at 
all of the things that he did. I mean, I was a kid looking up to this dude. So I've always been a big dude. I've always been dark skinned. I've always been deep voiced. So those are things in which, you know, just came naturally. Mm. Um, I think more than anything, though, when you look at it and you look at my body of work and you look at the music that I've made over the period of time, over the years, and especially some of the new music that I've been working on and everything that I've been on, I mean, it always speaks for itself. I have my own mind. I have my own way of looking at the world and the way I explain things and the way I expound upon a lot of different things that's in the world to this day. And so, yeah, and the way that he's seen his world and through his eyes. So mm -hmm. you can never compare two artists because they came they come from two different parts and their way in their environment and the way that they think about it and the way they approach it and when you look at you know big and what he said in the precedent and the standard it was high and the bar has been set high for quite some time for sure so when you and the label kind of fall out uh how's that go like not fall out but like when do you guys decide to go your separate ways um i think more than anything once you know again our interest became unaligned um, it was at the point in, in which where I don't want to bicker back and forth. Mm. This is what I do. This is my life. This is my music. This is my passion. And I'd rather, you know, us separate on amicable ways than to continue to go back and forth over, you know, this or over that. And I seen, you know, the glue to a lot of the dysfunction inside of that. I seen the adhesive there. And once I realized what that was, I think that I really wanted to, you know, I had an option which was in my contract where I wanted to be released. And so mm -hmm. upon my release, they would pay me and they would let me out of my contract, which was, you know, put in there by, you know, Mark Kavinsky and Peter Lopez. Mm. So at that point when you leave, though, are you still very motivated to make it as a rapper or have you lost some of the ambition at that point? Given I lost a lot of steam. Yeah. I lost a lot of steam. I lost a lot of because, you know, when you come into the music, you come in with this energy, mm -hmm. this ambition, this hunger, this drive. But then when you begin to understand the business side of it and the political side of it and the ruthless nature and the power grabs that are inside of it and the controlling and manipulative different personalities that you'll end up meeting then it changes what was so beautiful and, you know, free and spiritual and, you know, into something that becomes business, 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 business. So, yeah, it definitely took a lot of the fire out of my belly. Mm. So, I mean, along the way, you said that you never really got out of the streets, but were you, like, making money in the streets, like, that whole time? Because at some point you, you sort of, like, leave the music shit and you basically are back to what you were doing before yeah, in some way yeah, right yeah i mean at that time man i didn't have any financial literacy whatsoever understanding how money works um you know as most you know african-american kids we learn about money from who from our first teachers mm. our mothers our fathers and so their relationship with money is strained and it's not their fault, but it's been a perpetual cycle of that. So when you look at it, you know, my mother, she didn't want to talk about money because the lack of and always the worry to get to pay the light, the gas. So money is a very, you know, hot button topic 
you know, especially for a lot of young African-American kids, you know, in their household. It, it's not where I had a mother that was able to say, well, CDs gained this much interest. IRA accounts, you could pay it before or after, and they gained this amount of interest, and you have to leave it in this. Um, there's no tax loopholes for it. I had no one to sit down and give me an understanding of how money works. You know, uh, you know, money is dead and dead is money and they're inexchangeable. If you, you know, I had no one to sit me down and expound on how, you know, money was created, how the federal, nobody to sit down and show me, oh, this is why people buy real estate so that they could write off their earned income for 27.5 years against the depreciation and amortization. Mm -hmm. I didn't have... So a lot of us as African-Americans, we're not taught about money. So whenever I started having money problems as an adult, having two kids, I only went back to, again, I told you earlier, when a person makes a choice, all you have to do is go back to their condition. And then their condition, their cognition, the way that they think about things and ultimately the choices that they'll make. And so I went back to what I knew best, and mm -hmm. that was hustling. Definitely. The fraud thing, though, was kind of like a that's not something that was really happening in the 90s as much, I'm assuming. Or were you exposed to it back then as well? No, not 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 the 90s. But, you know, I, I knew about it. I knew about it. But, um, yeah, by the time after my record deal, you know, and I left the record company, um, a few years of, you know, financial strains or whatever, not. And, yeah, I got in. Because the thing that I said to Vlad on that interview that he did with me was that in 2003, 2004, when I was driving around Massachusetts and New Hampshire, et cetera, hitting all the malls and, and doing all our purchases, <laughs> right. that was the exact era in which I would have probably been listening to some Gorilla Black. <laughs> and then fast forward to, I don't know, what, what you, you got caught up around like 2009? No, 2012 is okay. when I first fell, so yeah. And so by that time, yeah, I had kind of like moved on. Well, I moved on right around then, actually. It's been a long-ass time since I'd done it. But then you ended up getting sort of wrapped up in that. Who necessarily – or how did, how did you end up figuring out that that was – because I remember one thing I used to think when I first moved to Queens, 2004, I was just around all this, like, you know, street shit that I'd never right. seen before where there's dudes putting right. dice on the corner. There's some dude who's right. obviously selling right. drugs on the corner. Right. And I remember thinking – if these motherfuckers knew about this credit card shit, Man. they would not be standing Man. on the corner. Fast exactly. forward to fast forward ten years, one hundred percent came true. I'll never forget, man, when the shit came to me and you know, once it came to me and I first got a card and I was like, Oh shit. And so bloop bloop approved. Bloop bloop mm -hmm. approved. So my fascination and my hunger and my motivation delved me even deeper and deeper and deeper to where I don't want to buy from nobody. I want to be the source of it. So I continue to deep, deep, deep dive. Mm. And so once I realized it, I just was having <laughs> tens and tens of thousands of credit cards every, every day at my, let me guess. Cause I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing that you're kind of similar to me in that I was, I was basically like brought on to be part of a crew that this dude was doing where right. he had some people. And I remember the first day I went out with him, he gave me like 40% of the, 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 the value of what right. we brought back. Right. And I, you know, blew my mind. But then I, I, I couldn't figure out the technological side of it. Like I couldn't figure out like, how do I order an encoder online? Yeah. But I had a friend who wanted to get down too, and right. I brought him around. Right. 
as soon as we were away from the guy who was trying to bring us in, he's like, I got it. He's like, I, I know exactly what I got to yeah. order. We, we cut yeah, out our I, connect yeah, right that, away. That that was, you know, the dude who was my connect, he ended up showing me where to go buy it oh, from. God, so yeah, no. once he showed me where to go buy it at, I was like, oh, shit. And so next thing you know, I'm able to get so many cards, and I'm like, oh, okay. And so I'm only making my little money back. I'm making my money back with a little bit of profit. And so then I was like, you know, let me dig even deeper because I don't want to buy from him anymore. I want to know who's the source. Mm. I want to go to the source. So I continued to dig deeper and deeper, and I eventually found the source. And, yeah, from there it was no limit to how many cards I could get, and, you know, the, the levels in which I was involved was even deeper and deeper and deeper. And so from that point out I could easily, you know, you know, make two, 300 cards a day, sell a few hundred of them a day. I, I would just sell a bunch of them and keep so many and send so many people out every single day. And that's what I did for a long time. Right. And I mean, did you stay focused on like that area of that game? Because I would always hear about like, oh, yo, when people really get into this, they be having whole identities and they'll go and take out a loan. And no, do all I, the, I didn't need to do all of yeah. that. I felt like I just wanted to keep it basic and simple. I mean, it was the only hustle that paid for everything. Mm. You know, I knew D-Boys, they still had to pay for gas and food and everything. Me, I'd pull out a car. Yeah. Bloop, 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 bloop. The gas, bloop, bloop. The food, bloop, bloop. The clothes, bloop, bloop. And go make $3,000. How did you beat me? That feeling of like a girl, like you're taking a girl out to eat and she's thinking you're rich as fuck and you're just thinking yeah. like, I ain't even paying for this. Yeah, I ain't even <laughs> finna pay for it. I just go right in my wallet. And you know, what was so crazy is... I put almost $5,000 in my wallet, and so I just walk in the store. And so I would have them all up in there. I put a, my, I have, okay, well, this one, this one, this one. Okay, I got, okay, that's 10. Okay, cool. Yeah, give me that. Yeah, yeah. I want 500 on that one, 500 on that one, five. Bloop, 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 bloop. And they would never, it was just so easy and so quick. So I realized that once I would leave there, I would pull up and put 50 on the tank. Bloop, bloop. And then roll back around the corner. You know what? I think I want some J's. Bloop, bloop. It just paid for itself. It never, it was the only hustle that, to me, out of all of the hustling, I've sold everything on the streets. It paid for the gas. It paid for the food. And it was profitable. So it, it was the ultimate hustle for me because I never had to buy anything. Mm. I just had nothing but you know, closets and closets full of clothes. And, you know, every time, you know, everybody went out and they worked with me, they trunks was full. They had washing detergent powder and they made a third, a third, a third. I split it all the way up. So everybody ate and everybody was fed. It's a weird hustle because you're doing it to make money. But then at a certain point, it almost feels like I don't even need money. I don't even, I never <laughs> did need, that was the scary I'm gonna part. I'm going to make, use this shit to make the money. money. Yeah. I'm not finna, I'm not finna spend no money. Mm. I mean, no lie to you. I would literally get up and maybe make 200 cards. Mm. Literally, you know, when I was being sentenced, you know, they brought it out. You know, the guy who told on me, he took him, you know, to the room where I made them and they put up a surveillance camera. Oh, and so, wow. yeah, this was played. At my at my uh, at my um, my sentencing, and wow. so they had a, I had an open plea sentence, so they played the footage of me making cards. So that's how you ultimately got caught up—is that you just had somebody snitching on you? Yeah, everybody pretty much. You know, 
the main dude told on me and another guy he told on me as well. So they both ended up telling on me and cooperating with the government. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just at the point of where, you know, I would make 200 cards a day and literally, you know, employ my little soldier at home, girls, and we would just go. But that's always the problem in any crime is once you start taking it to the level of really scaling it and it right. ends up being a bunch of people involved, that's when you're fucked. Yeah, but you, you can't know control what? Was, all, right? I, I can't control nobody, but I, I live by the code. And, you know, I've, I've mm-hmm. always lived by the code. And, I mean, I didn't, you know, these is, you know, they made their choices ultimately. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to make sure that I protect myself. So I would never put them in a position of where I – if they were to go to jail, I would leave them there. Hell, fuck no. I would bail their asses out. They got kids. Mm. You know, my mind is, okay, if I take care of them, they're going to take care of me. And none of them told on me. Mm. None of them told on me. It was two people told on me. They know who they are. All the rest of them people, none of them people told on me. Mm. Nobody. Them two people was men. Mm. Out of all of the women that I worked with, it was two men, and they told on me. You got hate in your heart for them still? You know what? <laughs> I look at it is that it was bigger than them. Mm. It was bigger than them. It was bigger than them. What they did, I don't like, but ultimately God had, you know, things don't happen to us, they happen for us. Mm. And so it, it it was two options. I think God really wanted to slow me down because I didn't have no breaks and I didn't have the rationale to really sit with my thoughts on a lot of shit. Um, my mind worked one way and it was one, you know, dimensional. And so it was this, I'm going to go get it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. There was never where, you know, (laughs) you know, they say everybody can hear God, but over the period of time, we, we turn his volume down more and more and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. So he becomes almost like a little... You had, him all, you had him all the way turned down. I had him all the way turned down. <laughs> you weren't hearing shit. I turned God all the way down. I wasn't if, hearing shit. If you're really doing some crime day in, day out, you, yeah. you, you're going to have to tune it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got to tune it out because you got to. You, you, so, I mean, I had turned it all the way down. And so he, you know, they say God protect fools and babies. And I think I was a fool. So, you know, he was protecting me. He was like, look, I, I'm going to have to put you over here for a minute. Mm. For one, either you're going to be dead or two you're going to end up getting some crazy, crazy numbers. And I was facing crazy, crazy numbers. So, I mean, to you, be you able to take a plea deal, I did an open plea, open plea where I split out to eight felonies. And in an open plea, I played out to five bank frauds, okay. aggravated identity theft. So for on the majority of my charges, I had an access device charge, too. So access device, uh, Aggravated identity theft, which carries a two-year mandatory, and five bank frauds. So he gave me 86 months, but the two runs, it doesn't run. You can't run it concurrent. Mm. It has a mandatory minimum. So after the 86 months, you tack on another 24 months, which gives me 110 months. Right. So, yeah, you can't run it. Bow, you can't. It, it runs bow-legged because of it's a mandatory because it was aggravated identity theft. It does feel like that's a pretty extreme uh, sentence. Yeah. Something that wasn't violent, that right. wasn't, right. Uh, you know. All right. Well, he could have banged my frame. Just, uh, you know, if, if you know, if you know anything about it, bank fraud carries a maximum penalty of thirty years. That could have been worse, huh? I pled to five, mm. so you just have to think about that. I also pled to access device fraud. So, 
look at the amount of cards that I was I had in my possession. I had thirty thousand cards. Mm. So well, they weren't physical cards, but thirty thousand numbers, you know, that were captured. You know, right. Um, when you look at it at five hundred a pop, that's twenty million dollars. Yeah, that's twenty million dollars. So he could have banged my frame, even though I was first coming into the system. My points were so high when you're looking at a sentencing guideline, at a federal sentencing guideline. So when you look at it, my range is between 108 to 135 months. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Once you get in there, um, yeah, just like how how did you manage? Like, like how long did it take for your, your mentality to sort of adjust to, to being in there and the fact that you were going to be doing all this time? Like how, how did it feel and, and, and all that? I mean, the first year is a mug. Second year is crazy. Third year, you still there. Fourth year, things feel a little bit better, and you're able to ex- accept it. In the fifth year, your mind leaves the street. Mm. It's not like it leaves it completely. It's just you understand that you're going to be here, mm. and you fully accept that, and you're fully enveloped in here. You're here. You're, you're You know that. We're going to watch TV at this time. We're watching Snowfall. We're going to make some nachos. I'm going to read this book the homie just gave me. I'm going to make a phone call. You were watching Snowfall in there? Because I was thinking when oh, you were what? telling your life story, I'm like, it sounds a lot like Snowfall yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, when you when you look at, you know, we we on a program. We do the same thing. At at 2 o'clock, I'm going to the weight pile. I'm going to buff iron. Uh, I'm going to go in the morning time. I'm going to do the reg move. I'm going to go do my morning cardio. You know, then, you know, throughout the day, you end up finding so many different things to do inside of there. But it's about what you do with your time. Mm. And the biggest thing for me is just reading. Reading became so big for me. I mean, huge for me. I mean, Harry O, man, I mean, that man is a genius, literally, man. He's, the, you know, the starter of Death Row. He, you know, he funded it and did all of that from, you know, where he was at. Mm. And I'll never forget, you know, he had three lockers full of books, books. I'm talking about like I was telling the guy earlier, he turned me on to a book called E-Myth by Michael Gerber. He turned me on to another artist that was super dope, this guy, this writer. His name was Aggie Mandino. I never forget we read the Everything Store, uh, Jeff Bezos, mm. you know, about the beginning and how, you know, Amazon was created and his parents, you know, garage and they had everything on a, pretty much a door. And so they had a bell in there hooked up. And so, you know, he just figured that one of the greatest things that he could sell and that he didn't need this big supply of was books. Mm. And, you know, it's, you know, there's books all over the world, but you don't have to have them all there. And he realized that he could actually ship them. And when he realized that he could be profitable selling books, he realized that he could be profitable selling anything online. Mm. And so there goes the everything store. Definitely. Um, was where you were located, was it some super crazy shit or was it a bunch of guys who had kind of accepted that they were going to be in there for a long time and it was sort of chill? It was sort of chill to an extent, you know, other than, you know, there would always be standout moments and different shit that, you know, dudes had to, you know, take care of and things happen there of that nature. But for most parts, you know, it, it would stay relatively cool because with prison, you know, everything is political. So, mm. you know, you can't really jump out there and do some stupid shit because of the simple fact that, you know, 
these are your people and so you're warned and you're told what you can and what you can't do and you understand immediately how far to go and not to go mm. you know and so once you understand that the, the lines and the boundaries are drawn and so you understand that and so in there it, it's, a, it's a form of respect once respect is broken then people get hurt period mm. people get hurt would you say that you're that you sort of went into a leadership type role or were you on some leave me the fuck out of it i'm not trying to do anything i don't gotta no do no i didn't take a leadership or leave myself all the way out of it you know at the end of the day i didn't pc up i was on the main line with everybody else with everybody i ate child with everybody i didn't go hide in protective custody or anything like that it was just that you know when shit arose you know in different situations that happened on the yard that took place i'm there mm. And that was just what it was. I mean, I didn't consider, I don't consider myself different from nobody else. At the end of the day, I got kids and I got family. And this right here is when you know that it's that important, you know, it's a scary situation because you facing the opposition and you outnumbered. But, you know, I put my kids picture in my heart, in my pocket and you know, kiss them and, and prepare to do whatever, it, you know, it needs to be done. Do you ever have a moment in there where you're thinking, all I want in the world is to go home to my kids, but I got to do some crazy ass shit right now in prison because if I don't, I'm going to lose my respect and I'm going to not be able to continue to exist I mean, that, that shit always is there, but, you know, the biggest thing is, is when, you know, that me getting down or a person getting down with you in there, that comes and goes. You can't allow... Uh, nobody to get at you out of pocket any way around nobody mm. period hands down the first time no put your shoes on let's go no never Dis no disrespect is ever tolerated in there and if you see a dude allow another man to disrespect him then everybody loses respect for you mm. you can't have that respect you have to be a man before any and all things i don't care whether you're a preacher a pastor a game banger a stockbroker, whatever you got to be a man first whether you get your ass whooped or you whoop ass then the respect is there you know what he took a good ass whooping but he fought mm. he got his ass whooped but he fought uh, yeah all the prison show shit that i've watched it's it's pretty crazy watching that dynamic play out where there really is no shame in getting your ass beat, but there's so much shame in not holding it down the way you're supposed yeah, to. Yeah, coward die a thousand deaths, Which period. is interesting because the outside world is different than that, where if you get your ass beat on the outside, you will be clowned as yeah, a result. But, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, man, but it's okay. Yeah. At least you didn't kill no. If you had your ass whooped or whooped somebody's ass, you didn't kill somebody. A lot of dudes have this conception and preset notion in this day and age and where we living at in this environment and this climate that if they get their ass whooped, they need to go get that Draco. Mm -hmm. I need to go get that pole. Again, once you get the Draco, once you go get that pole, he can't come back from that. You can't come back from that. He has a pole. You got a pole. The difference of it is, is, is the after effect and the long stretching effect of it after that family members are involved. This could play out and more people potentially get fucked up. So again, what's wrong with a good old fashioned and passionate ass whooping like Eminem said? Mm. <laughs> what's wrong with a good old fashioned passionate ass whooping? Right. What's wrong with it? Like Eminem said, I mean, because at the end of the day, you survive. 
You got your ass whooped. Shit, I done had my ass whooped plenty of times. Lip busted, tooth knocked out, eye swole. Damn, whew. need a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. You know, need to think this shit off. You right. know, my ass whooped. I mean, I sit there and eat a bag of chips. I mean, shit, my ass whooped. I'm lumped up, but damn, he got the best of me. But I I went in there and I held my candle. It was regardless of it. Wouldn't be. It wasn't the first or the last time. Oh man, give me some popcorn. Your eye all right? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get some ice for it in a minute. Right. I mean, I'm not saying. Oh, you just supposed to get your ass whooped all. Day. No, I'm just saying that happens. You're gonna meet your match. You're gonna meet somebody who can whoop your ass. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. There's somebody you you going in that place with your chest poked out, thinking that you the one. Believe me, they're gonna test that. You're gonna find somebody who. Is better. Uh, it seemed like a viral tweet or Instagram story going around the other day that was basically like, your gun is there to protect your life. Your gun is not there to protect you from getting your ass beat in a fair fight. Exactly. Which is, it would be great if people like absorbed that a little bit more. Exactly. I mean, once you pull that Draco out and you kill that man, he has a mother, he has a father, he may have kids, he may have a baby mother, he have cousins, he have aunties. The other, the effects go beyond just him. When you go to prison, who all is going to be affected? All of your family, your mother, your father, your brothers, your cousins, your sisters, all of them, even your children, your baby. So who won? Mm. Who won? There's no clear victor because you allowed your anger to take hold of you and you, you didn't get the desired outcome that you wanted. Look mm. at the outcome. I sat in there, man, and so many people have so many different stories of how they ended up getting 20 years, 30 years on a phone count or 15 years just, you know, because the feds are very, very harsh. When you're doing 85.5 percent of your time and you realize how the, the sentencing guidelines have been set for almost the last 40 years and, you know, how this, you know, disproportional that they're set against African-Americans with drug charges and different things like that of that nature. Like, like you said, even with my time, I've seen people come in with the same loss amount as me, but only get 55 months. But when I signed the open plea, I signed away my appeal rights. Mm. So that was explained to me, you know, by, you know, Harry O and my other boy, like, you know, when I did that, you signed away your appeal rights. So when the money loss changed in 14 it changed again in 15 the money loss changed again i couldn't go back to the courts and appeal for a lesser sentence because i signed away my appeal rights oh, wow. because for the open plea so that i could get my guideline of 108 to 135 months wow ignorance is expensive when you were locked up was there ever a point where you were thinking like i'm gonna get out and keep doing the same shit i was doing or i'm gonna do something illegal or was your mind kind of on like I need to get my life right when I get out? Period. Yeah, that's that's why I, I went in. I, I, you know, there's a program in there. A lot of people they probably know about it. It's called RDAP, and it, it's a cognitive behavior program. And you know, that's when you see this bracelet. You know, this is you know the completion of that cognitive behavior program. Mm-hmm. If you see FCC Lompoc, but um, I wanted to, you know. When I was in the program, I heard a lot of different statements that were made. And, you know, there was, you know, a lady, she was, you know, my DTS, and um, her name was Miss Robinson. And she said, Mr. Williamson, look where your best thinking got you. Your best thinking got you here. Hmm. 
your best thinking put you here. And there was another DTS by the name of Mr. Mr. Taronis. <laughs> and after I was recycled, he really, really grilled me. And he said something to me because I went to group. And um, when you recycled, you're pushed back three more months. So you're pushed from the group that you're in into another group. And uh, because, you know, uh, you know, um, of my anger, which, you know, I allowed my emotions to get me, you know, to a point to where I walked up, you know, on my senior guide. And, you know, I was I really wanted to hurt him. And so it has set a bad precedent because a lot of people had looked at me as a as a model inside of the program. But when they seen me blow up to that level. And I walked up on him and I invaded his, you know, interpersonal intrusiveness. When I got there on him, I didn't even realize how angry I had got mm. at that time and how aggressive I was. And so he said, you know, Mr. Williamson, people don't change because they see the light. They change because they feel the heat. Mm. And so when he told me that, you know, that day I really didn't like what he said to me. I didn't like that shit, Adam. But when I look at it in hindsight, 22, unfortunately, a lot of people are not going to see the light, but they will change when they feel that heat mm. in one way or another. And so, you know, when I thought about those two sayings, you know, my best thinking, look where your best thinking puts you at. And mm. a federal penitentiary, all the greatest thoughts, all of the greatest things you've done in the world and your best thinking put you here mm. with me. And I said, wow, yeah, I need to do something because I can't continue to travel down this same path and continue to, you know, think the way that I'm thinking. So it put me in a place where I was around different people to challenge me. It allowed me to understand what it is to be open-minded. Mm. A lot of people say, oh, I'm open-minded. Yeah, I'm really open-minded. But no, when you say but, you're not open-minded. So if next time you talk to someone, but, oh, yeah, yeah, I hear you, but, no, you're not really hearing me. Mm. If you're open-minded, you're able to not be cynical or foolish. You know, a cynic can't embrace a new ideal or see a new viewpoint mm. or be open to others' ideals. A fool is too foolish to keep a foolish-ass scheme out of here, so they reside on the same side of reality. But being open-minded is truly being able to hear your ideal out, see the way that you're structuring it, and look at it from that view and say, oh, wow, what if his ideal is really right? Mm -hmm. And what if what the way I'm thinking about it is wrong? But that's okay. And maybe he may have a right answer, and maybe she may have a right answer. It's not about having one right answer. It's about having five right answers. Mm. And so it put me in a place to where I was able to challenge myself and around other people that were trying to challenge themselves and make changes for themselves. A lot of dudes have been to prison four and five times wondering why they had kept coming to prison over and over and over and over. And, you know, being in that program gave me the ability to really look back at my life and ask myself, hey, you know what? Who really won from this scenario? Mm. Well, the people who I took the credit cards definitely didn't win. Did my kids win? Uh, no. Did my wife win? Check, no. Did I win? Check, no. Everybody lost. There was no 
real hero. And what did I do it for? I did it for money. Money. Hmm. Okay. So where does money rank on this totem pole here? Mm. The wealthy don't measure riches in richness. They measure wealth in time. So when you look at time, information, leverage, money is just a byproduct of ideals. So I did this for money. Hmm. I traded my time for money. Look at the people I could have met, the relationships that I could have involved. Look at everything that I could have did in the period of almost nine years with my time. And mm. so, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah, it was real crazy. Now that you're out, where's your mind at? And I, I regret having to sort of like rush this conversation along slightly because we have another podcast I got to do after this. But what, we're almost two hours in. But <laughs> what coming home where is your mentality at now like what wh where do you feel like your energy is best put do you feel like your you know music is the thing you're focusing on or, or where's your mentality my my music is definitely a big focus of mine right now but i also created a hair care company which is called hair gods in which i do you know beard oil and i create you know organic products because like i told you in 2005 i had a hair shop and so Back then, my wife used to work in there, and you would see a lot of different women coming in with invisible edges, psoriasis of the scalp, you know, hair breakage and things like that of that nature. So I started creating products back then, and so I'm back at that, creating products to help grow your beard, you know, grow your hair, you know, shampoos, conditioner, all natural, shade moisturizer. So I'm focused on that, and I'm focused on my music. So mm. that's where my mind is at. And really with this music right now, we've been really moving forward, and so... Definitely, I want everybody, you know, to go to my Instagram page, man, at Official Gorilla Black. Um, on Friday, we're going to be dropping three more new records that I just created as recently. Is it Friday, Boss Lady? Friday, Friday. We, we just created, uh, I, I've been just cutting records after record after record. So we're going to be dropping three records on Friday. And I want, you know, everybody, you know, to go out right now. I have a new T-shirt line and I've been working on different things or whatever. Now it's called a Messiah Collection. And so, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of different T-shirts, inspirational T-shirts, a lot of motivational T-shirts and things like that. It's called the MessiahCollection.com. So, yeah. That's dope. Um, so your, your girl really held you down in prison the whole fucking time? Yeah, man. My wife, definitely, man. She looked out for me, man. And without her, I don't think I would have made it through that, you know, that period. You know, one thing I will say is that woman, man, she brought them kids up there, man, to see me. And... You know, when you separated from the world and everybody and everything that you know, and you in a place full of 1,500 hardened criminals and all of they, they miserable and they mad and just to be able to have your kids and people who really love you, that means a lot to be in a place like that right mm -hmm. there. Um, she would come there, man. And I mean, she would bring them boys faithfully, man. And so um, she also made sure that she took you know, care of me, you know, made sure money was on my books, made sure that my businesses were ran and things of that nature. So I definitely, you know, she held me down, man, definitely. That's pretty well, incredible. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. She definitely held me down, man. And so I'm eternally thankful and forever grateful to her, man, and for her being the mother, the wife, you know, to those boys, a, a great mother, a wife, you know, that, I mean, you know, to be able to find people like that in this world is very, very, very rare. So definitely, man. Yeah, definitely. I love you, Sean. Definitely. That's a beautiful thing. 
Um, yeah, everybody check his Instagram out if you want to know what, what Black is up to and shit. Um, I mean, it's a it's a crazy story. It's an inspirational story. And I mean, I, I definitely when I hear you talk about it, it feels like you've, you know, made these mistakes and, you know, like you actually had to end up paying the price. But you seem like your mind is in a great place now and you're ready to just really make the best out of the, the years you have here. Yeah, man, definitely, man. After being in a place like that for so long, man, I'm just really just excited, man. I really want to work with a lot of new artists, man, here on the West, down in the South, in the Midwest. I'm really, really making music, music. And definitely, I want people to, you know, go check out, you know, my, my websites, man. I'm creating merchandise and as well my hair care products and stuff. So I'm excited, man. It's a new period of time. I, I was isolated for a long, long time. So to be able to have freedom again, your liberties, this is something that I mean, for me, from my perspective, looking at it through my lenses and seeing what I've seen through my lenses from my eyes to be at this point, to be sitting down with you, man, to be here on this platform with you. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have imagined this, man, five years ago sitting in the shoe. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I mean, that, that's one thing I was thinking of is how weird it must be for you to, you know, have been involved in rap for all these years. And then you, you get out of prison and there's like, oh, yeah, like there's this white guy who has a podcast called No Jumper that a fuckload of people will listen to. And they'll probably having you on there will probably be really popular. You should go do it. It's like that must sound so crazy, but so futuristic, so you know? futuristic, man. But definitely, man, I appreciate you having me here, man. I definitely do. Anybody, I want y'all to go to my page, man. At official Gorilla Black, definitely y'all can contact, you know what I'm saying, my manager, man, boss lady, you know what I'm saying, boss lady in the building. Um, you know what I'm saying? Shouts out to my man Bootsy out there, man. We was down in Bull City, definitely doing it real big, man. I love you. My man Wafu out there, man. You know, keep holding your kid down. And so, definitely, we just working. Hey, man, I appreciate it. It was an honor uh, getting to hear your whole story and shit. And we should do it again sometime, too. Definitely, man. Anytime, man, Adam. Definitely. I really enjoy it, man. I really like that you've really been around the culture and you're one of those people that look at this from a musical perspective, man, and you've really been involved with this shit. That means a lot for the culture itself to help perpetuate it to that next level. And I really love it that you come from that hip hop level of it. And a lot of people respect you for that shit. And I thank you, man. I definitely do. Thank you. No, I mean, every time I get to sit down with somebody like you who's been in the game for all these years, it's a, it's a real honor. Definitely, man. It's an honor to be here, man, with somebody who's really involved with this culture and really want to help move it forward. Thank you. And I mean, even just in your individual story, I just hope that this interview plays a role in moving whatever you got going. Definitely, man. Stuff, we, I definitely appreciate you. I definitely do. And when I sat back and a lot of the people had spoke to me about some of the things that you've did over the period of years and how deeply you have loved music hip-hop music and how much you really you focus on this it really made me like wow big difference in your platform and a whole lot of other ones appreciate that man thank you so much thank you man definitely gorilla black no jumper coolest podcast in the world check us out on youtube soundcloud itunes like comment subscribe nojumper.com if you want to support and uh make sure you tap in with my man on instagram and everything like that you got a lot of good shit on the way artificial gorilla black <laughs>